are listening to Confessions of a High School Bible Teacher. Hey everybody, this is Chris Seals. And this is Wayne Randolph. And since we are sitting across the table from one another, I think that makes this Confessions of a High School Bible Teacher. It does. It does. Hey Wayne. Have you ever cut an umbilical cord? Nope, I didn't get a chance. I, I had to think. Yeah? Nope. nope. Was it a C-section? Yeah, they were both C-sections. Mm, got it. But I, yeah, it was weird. Yeah, what do they do with the belly? What, like the umbilical cord? Not, that's not, that was not on my priority list. No? So I have yeah. no clue. I bet you can Google it. Huh. What about you? Yes. Did you? I've cut one. Uh, my daughter's umbilical cord. Did you have any like weird feeling when you did that? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, like, were you were you could hurt her. Even, even yeah, <laughs> even though there was like the the two clamps, um, and they were like just cut between the clamps. There was like the idea that like if I cut it wrong, is she gonna have a weird belly button? Or um, even though it was really far from the belly button, there's all sorts of belly button anxiety. Yeah. Um, Can you imagine your daughter as a 16 year old? Like, what the crap, Dad? Yeah. 16 years from now, do you think people will still be podcasting? I don't, dude, that's strange. Well, if not, then I can say that her belly button might have gotten infected and it smelled a little bit like fish. And so we had to do what we had to do. Yeah. So um, <laughs> That's amazing. Have you ever been asked by a high school student if um, Adam and Eve had a belly button? Um, actually, last year, and you know, I've been in this game for a while, last year was the first time I heard that question, and I totally just stared, had a blank, and started laughing. <laughs> and yeah. Yes, I have. How about you? Um, yes. I actually, what do you do I, with it? You know what? It's funny. I think the first time it surfaced, since I went to Christian school for high school as well, um, I think that it first surfaced in my friend group. And so um, when I became a teacher, it was less surprising yeah. that that would be a question. But as a teacher, how did you even consider approaching that? I would want to laugh at a student, and I would imagine I'd get emails and calls from parents and... Yeah, and I think that that kind of gets into like the, the idea of what we really wanted to talk about is, so how do we approach questions in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, mm-hmm. right? Because we're looking at a specific genre, a specific type of literature that exists in this inspired word of God that we naturally have to play some interpretive games with, right? And so let, let's just start with this. What, is there anything wrong with the question um, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? No, it's curiosity. Like, we should be curious. Uh, and I think God's a big enough God to handle our curiosity. Mm-hmm. But as far as the, <laughs> the the philosophical, I guess, underlayment of that, yeah. right? What it, it sort of it has all sorts of presuppositions when you ask that sort of question, right? Right. Yeah, like what that God created um, two literal human beings um, in a literal garden in the Middle East somewhere. Um, th- there's all sorts of things that are implied in those sorts of questions. Yeah, there's also like, yeah, did, were they were Adam and Eve actually actual babies, or did he make them 32? I mean, that's all the cartoons I've seen. They're all, yeah, they're they're, all about in their you know, late 20s. You know it would be great if Adam and Eve were actually teenagers? That would make more sense. <laughs> that would, right? Don't do this. No, I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah that would exactly. make Don't sense. Tell, watch me. Watch me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do they have fully developed frontal lobes? Hmm. And so I think that like, so as, as high school Bible teachers, I think that 
you and I probably have some like similarities in the way that we approach those situations. But um, one of the ways <laughs> that I approach, and this is good and bad for a bunch of different reasons, is sometimes I will, um, I will fire hose them. In what um, sense? What do you mean? I, I will fire hose them <laughs> in, and this is almost always a classroom management strategy because mm. sometimes we aren't talking about the Garden of Eden. We're actually talking about atonement um, and the life of Jesus. And someone says, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Um, and in that moment, usually I will answer in such a way that is really unhelpful. So I need to probably correct this, but I will say, well, um, and then I'll give a long explanation of, of genre identification um, and other forms of literature from the time and Hebrew words and stuff that sort of flies over their heads. And when they're quiet uh, with the blank stares, then I'll go back to talking about atonement. Nice. It's probably yeah, not I a good teaching I strategy. I don't. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I try to clown my kids too sometimes for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I think when that question comes up, um, I think one of the things that I'm, I, I'm first doing is like really assessing who's asking the question. Hmm. Are you trying to get a rise out of people? You know what I mean? Like, like, but it's also it's also a good question, right? Right. I mean, it's 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 getting at the at the kind of core of things and trying to make connections and and so yeah, I probably recognize it at times as well that I I've, I might have I don't know if snuffed out is the right mm-hmm. uh, word, but like when people are generally asking questions like that, you know, I've, I've kind of put them in their place, probably to their detriment of asking more questions. Yeah. Uh, and so I wonder if even in some of the questions that kids are asking, um, I know that you and I both like doing this, and I'm sure that we have so much room to grow at this, but helping them get at better questions or, mm-hmm. like, what, what's the deeper question behind what you're asking, um, wh- which I know, yeah, I think we both kind of, we kind of have fun with that, right? Right. And, and, I and think there's a lot of those in the garden. That, yeah. it, well, not just the garden. Like you said, the first 11 chapters are... So why, why is genre, I, I think even just starting there, why is genre so important I think genre identification is so important because what it does as a teacher, I mean, I can be Google, but I think that we already have Google to be Google, right? Right. And so if if students are just asking me like I'm Siri, um, what's the answer to a question, then that's why they have iPads. That's why they have their devices is to ask those sorts of questions. And so as an educator, specifically as a educator in theology, and I mean, if we haven't said this already, we are not theologians. We teach theology. And, well, I guess everyone's a theologian in a sense, anyone who makes any sort of claim about God. Yeah, it's our, it's our attempt to understand God, right? right? And, and learn from, hopefully, from, from good, solid theologians who've dedicated their lives to studying this stuff. But, yeah, we're, we're, we're not theologians. We're, we're Bible teachers. Right. And, and <laughs> we, we have, we've, under, we've taken some classes in our undergrad, and we've, we've done some things to study um, a scripture and, and have those tools. But... What, what our main concern is, is how do we get kids, um, not even kids, how do we get young adults to be able to grapple with the text, grapple with mm. this, this God that created the universe and, and make sense of it? And so when it comes to like, those questions and talking about genre identification, I think one of my main pushes is I almost will never answer the question, right. but I will instead say, these are different ways that we can look at the text. Um, and usually I will, especially if it's something controversial. So obviously we're not going to just talk about belly buttons the whole time, but in Genesis we have issues like um, 
evolution as a mechanism for like God to create diverse species or um, special creation? Um, was there a literal Tower of Babel? Did the flood flood the entire earth? Like all of these questions that we get asked um, instead of saying yes or no. Um, because if we say yes or no, then we can get into those silly debates about the Himalayas and how did the water get up there or Pangea. But if we teach them genre identification, if we teach them how to actually look at the text faithfully, responsibly, and critically, then maybe we can start having some meaningful discussions. Actually have the discussions we, we want to have with them. And, exactly. I, and I think even when you were talking about us being teachers too, like um, I know for me something that's super important, and, and I, I know by default you as well, is um, like you said, we're not just answering the question, we're not just answering like the yes and no, but that we are equipping them to find the answers for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows that they're going to be in our class next year? Who knows that they're going to be at our school when they go to college, who know, I mean, like, there's all kinds of data out there that says, like, they're, they're done with this by the mm-hmm. time they're in college as well. And so are we actually equipping them and preparing them to navigate the text uh, and giving them the tools to do it themselves? Um, the idea that you said about, like, just answering yes and no on some of those questions, mm-hmm. um, we alluded to this idea in, the, in our last podcast about we both kind of have maybe some baggage with our upbringing hmm. um, or maybe the gospel that was presented to us or the way it was presented or maybe the limited way it was presented to us. Um, just out of curiosity, were these questions, because I think we all had them growing up, um, what, what kind of answers did you get growing up mm-hmm. um, when you, because I, I know that's, that's even um, lays the foundation for why we even teach the way that we do, or maybe even why we teach Bible altogether. Yeah. Um, so did you, do you have some experience with just getting yes and no answers? I, I would get yes or no answers, or I think something that you and I both intentionally try to do is, is get at the philosophical understanding underneath the question, mm-hmm. whereas I felt like a lot of the answers I got growing up would assume my philosophical understanding and then answer according to that. Yeah. So it would be a yes or no without first seeing, well, what do I think about the age of the earth or what do I think about um, the the two differing creation accounts? Or Wait, there's two different <laughs> stories in Genesis? What? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. That's um, actually controversial to some people. Right, that's, exactly. that's like a trigger for some. And the reason I asked that too, Chris, is um, I had a conversation recently with with um, with people older than me, mm-hmm. um, and I'm in my 40s. Um, and as we talked about genre in in Genesis, the pushback I got, and th- this was um, this definitely was was a couple who probably hadn't even had that uh, idea introduced to them that, mm. that there are different genres in the text. Um, and, and the pushback I got, uh, and, and I think this might be a good segue into some of those topics, the pushback I got was, if you don't read this literal, then then how do you decide, mm-hmm. then does, aren't you just picking and choosing what you like in Scripture? Um, I'm sure you have ran into that either with right. parents mm-hmm. or maybe maybe some really tightly wound students. Yeah. Could, could, do you mind just maybe addressing that or, or like how, how would... How would you respond to somebody who says that? Yeah, and I I would respond differently depending on who I'm talking totally. to. Totally, yeah, right, um, right. But but the goal of any sort of conversation would would be to get to the root of of language. Mm. When we say words, when we write words, we are trying to communicate something. Yeah. Sometimes we try to communicate something through hyperbole or exaggeration. Sometimes we try to communicate something by being as precise and exact as we could possibly be. Um, and then there's other times when we use poetic, flowery language. If I, if every time I saw my wife, I told her that massive amounts of dopamine and serotonin fire in my body when Fine. I see you, then that's that's not communicating love to her, right? Um, I need metaphor. That's I amazing. need I need 
um, better images and words. All right. Have you actually ever told your wife you loved her that way? I have. Yes. Awesome. Right on. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, if I say that I feel like my heart's going to explode when I see you because mm. I love you so much, I, my heart's not going to explode. And I'm very aware of that's not going to happen. And so, but it doesn't make it less true, right? You just identify the genre that I'm using loaded poetic language. So like um, when I was younger and I would get either like Cracker Jack boxes or like um, like cereal boxes and there was always, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going with this, huh? And there was always like this like creature on the side of the box and there was like these special codes and you just needed like the decoder ring. Right. Um, and in, in order to actually receive the message, I needed the right like lens or decoder ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, in terms of genre, um, what decoder ring, yeah. <laughs> if we can perpetuate that idea, what decoder ring do we need? Um, let's just let's just stick with the creation story. Let, okay. Let's just stick with the the first three chapters for for um, that for right now. Yeah. Um, what what decoder ring do we need? Um, would you say? Well, I th- I think that at least one of the decoder rings we need is to understand that it is like it is theological poetry, mm. right? The the number of sevens and multiples of sevens and and threes and tens and fours and all of these, um, not fours, threes and tens and sevens and there's another number in there. Oh, well. Um, oh, I was thinking 14, like double sevens. Um, all of these different numbers um, are consistently occurring in the text. Also, one of the main features of, of Hebrew poetry, um, you, you can't tell it's poetry by rhyming. Like right. in, in English, it's poetry if it rhymes. But in Hebrew... Every it's, time. Yeah, it's poetry if, <laughs> if there's parallelism. Ah. Um, and we get this rhythm, and there was evening and there was morning on the first day. There was evening and there was morning on the second day. Um, and so with, with, we have to realize that what we're reading is poetry. Now, there's definitely poetry that communicates historical facts. Right. right? Um, and there's definitely poetry that talks about things that really happened in space and time. Right. Um, but for the most part, that is not the main purpose of poetry. The main purpose of poetry is to communicate a deeper meaning, is to communicate um, something that's more to the heart. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So let me ask you this. So in that same conversation I was having with this couple, um, specifically they were asking about um, the time the time it took God to create mm, the earth. Yeah. And so we, we got into the, I guess you'd say the age-old debate. Right. But, um, <laughs> um, and, and so they were, th- these are people who are holding pretty fairly tightly to a, a, a young earth, a 24-hour period, mm-hmm. which, is, which is fine with me if you want to hold on to that. I, I mean, I don't. I don't know if that's the point. Actually, right. no, I, I know it's not the point of the creation story, but like if they wanted that. But so it, as the conversation went on, and I was explaining genre and, and decoder rings. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that I asked them was like, if, if I was to hand you a math textbook and, and have you write a, a research paper on um, Kepler uh, and an and, and older you know, mathematician, mm-hmm. like could you, would you have the, enough information to give me a research paper on, on Kepler with a math book? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was trying to kind of draw the conclusion. Like, I I don't know if I would ever hand you, um, you know, the first three chapters of Genesis and tell you to come up with a, you know, a really accurate scientific explanation for how the earth was created. Right. Do you see any, any, anything wrong with that analogy? Are there any flaws in that? Um, no, I, I'm not looking for my own personal validation, but um, is that, do you think that kind of communicates what you're talking about? I think so. And I think what, what it really cuts to is what was the text intended for? Right. Right. And if we're, whenever we're reading scripture, um, scripture is God breathed um, for the purpose of, of equipping us um, and for the purpose of training us and instructing us in, in understanding this God that we're trying to relate with. And so 
Um, we clearly want to know what he was trying to communicate if we're reading his communication to yeah. us. Yeah. What, what does it say if, like, if he's not telling us those things? Like, when we ask a lot of these questions and we're like, huh, I don't know. It's just not yeah. in the text. I don't know about belly buttons. And, right. And, and then, of course, I think we're supposed to have fun, you know, wrestling with some of those ideas. But what does that say about us if, if that's where we are spending a lot of our time with the text mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily God's intention? What, what do you – Yeah. how do you – what, well, decipher that, right? and, and like the the biblical nerd words that yeah. get thrown around in at least Bible ten a lot. Tenth um, <laughs> grade Bible is um, eisegesis versus exegesis. Excellent. Can you um, expand on that? For yeah, our... absolutely. So exegesis is what we want to do when we read stri- scripture. It's the process of extracting meaning from the text. What is in there? Um, what did it mean to the ori- original audience? And then how can we contemporize and draw? application and meaning out of it for us today. Um, Eisegesis is when we approach the text looking for something, right? We have um, the answer that we want in mind, and then we go to the text and we we search the text for those answers. We we just went through uh, kind of a shotgun lesson of the book of Revelation and uh, got to plant a little seed, an idea of eisegesis in our ninth graders, and you'll get them next year. And that was one of the things in, in, in Revelation and talking about the beast and all, I mean, there's just all this symbolism and talking genre and apocalyptic uh, genre with them. Um, one of the things we talked about was like, if you are going around looking for the beast and the mark of the beast, and maybe it's this microchip in your hand, like mm-hmm. you'll find it in the text because right. you're importing your, your reality into the text. And the thing I just kept telling the kids, and hopefully, hopefully they, it clicked for them. I hope you'll like you'll like them next year. <laughs> I just kept telling, like, isn't it arrogant? Hmm. M- might it be a little bit arrogant to start with the idea that John was, you know, imprisoned on an island, and but all he could think about was writing for us in 2017 mm-hmm. about some microchip. Like, right. maybe we're missing the point again. So, yeah. how, how do we do that in Genesis? How, how do you see? How do you see we collectively as the Christian family? Where, where do you see that? Because it, it manifests in our classroom right. with our students, yeah. right? So where, where, where have you seen some of that? Well, and I th- where I think it starts is looking long and hard at the text, mm. right? Um, I, I think that even in reading Genesis, I think a lot of times more progressive Christians might start with the data of the mm. um, that seems to indicate that the universe is 13.8 or whatever billion years old. So I come, um, out, I come out of my science class or right. my science degree, and I, and I have those... Right. And ideas we, and presuppositions. And, and then we try to harmonize the text with it, but, but maybe that's not what the text was asking at all. And maybe some of us from uh, maybe the more conservative side of Christianity, and when I say progressive or conservative, I realize that these words can be charged, but they also kind of don't mean anything because yeah. um, we, we use them to say us versus them. And so if we're able to set that stuff aside and look at the text and say, okay, honestly, what does this look like it's trying to communicate? Um, and not just that at first glance, but to but to really dig, then I think um, we will find things. So, for example, yeah. um, your your friends that you were talking to, um, I can totally grant that the most on the face reading of Genesis one is seven twenty four hour periods right. because right. it says, "And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day," which would seem to indicate days, right, and like normal days, and not. Um, when you're clarifying evening and morning, you can't say, well, like maybe by day they meant a million years or right. anything like it's Like clearly, back in my day. Right. It's, it's clearly <laughs> referring to, no, 24 yeah, Some sort hour, of time period. Some to- sort yeah. of time period. There's evening and there was morning. And so I can commend them for taking the text for what it says. But at right the on. same time, 
um, when we acknowledge that parallelism and when we also acknowledge some other features of the text, like the fact that light is created on day one and and there's vegetation on Earth by day three. Um, and by day four, that's when the sun shows up um, and the moon and so the stars. So potentially there's an entirely different type of photosynthesis happening? Right, exactly. That, yeah. that the sun... And, and the, the sun was made on the fourth day, right? It wasn't, and the sun became visible in the sky. The right. sun was made the on the fourth day. The light of the sun day. finally hit us on the fourth day. Right, yeah. and so, I mean, if we're, if we're also honest with the text, then we look at that and say, okay, well, we what could issue. that imply, yeah. right? And so, yeah. I mean, literary framework theory is one of the ones that sort of appeals to me, which in, in a nutshell is the idea that, that the six days of creation are six parallel structures. On day one, he creates light. On day four, he creates beings of light. On day mm-hmm. two, he creates the seas and the skies. And on day five, he creates beings that fill the seas and fill the skies. On day three, he creates um, the earth and vegetation. And on day six, he creates beings that inhabit mm-hmm. the earth and vegetation. And that's that good kind of like stacking Hebrew poetry right. and kind of bookending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so we can preserve. That's really pretty when you yeah, look it at it that way. It's, it's Absolutely. Yeah. Um, huh. and, and what it what it would communicate, right? If we're looking for what does scripture communicate, it communicates that, well, from the beginning, um, Bereshit bara Elohim, right? In the beginning, God created. Um, it, he, he created everything um, out of nothing. It doesn't say, and in the beginning, God began to organize the chaos. It starts mm-hmm. with God created. And so mm-hmm. we can, from the very beginning, we know that God is eternal. Yeah. We know that he has made all that exists. Um, we know that he brought order to chaos, and in that beautiful parallelism, um, we we see that God is not just that he does not just make beautiful things, but he he orders things and makes them beautiful. Yeah, that's one of the things I really value in, in talking with people who who hold really tightly to a literal view uh, of of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things I, I do, and I, and I've learned that along the 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 years. Um, you know, there's nothing more kind of dangerous than than somebody who's young and who has a little bit of this knowledge and just how aggressive we get with people and right. the way we talk. And so um, one of the things I, I've really learned growing up is is finding that common ground. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I appreciate that you said that, acknowledging like, hey, that's a good thing to do. Like, it's probably a really good thing to assume that Scripture means what it says right. and start there. Let that be your starting point. And, and then allow it to, to change as you learn genre, as you learn language. Um, right. Um, but one of the things I've noticed that when they, they hold uh, tightly to that is how how God is an orderly God. And, and so to even start there, like, so whether whether it is, again, six days or six million, whatever it is, but the fact that you do, you do still see some things that do corroborate. Corroborate? Wow, that's a hard word. Corroborate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with, with, with science, that there is order, there is structure, there, mm-hmm. there is... Um, and so I do love that. I do love that I still see um, evidence in, in the scientific world for God's creation. Uh, does that make sense? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but, then, but then again, like for me, it's like, okay, yeah, but. Right. Like, but, but what else is going on? Like e- even within those day and evenings, if that's what you're, you're looking at, hmm. is that these are day and evening, that clearly that's a 24-hour period. But yeah, but what was he doing in between it? Right. right? And, and what, what does it reveal about our maker? What does it mm-hmm. reveal about our creator? And so I do see an orderly God. I do see a God, like, and I love that idea too, of taking something that's chaotic and he arranges it perfectly to yeah. the point where we're still, we're still studying it today. Scientists right. are still learning about the order that he, that he put it in. Right. And, and so I guess what I, I see there, Chris, is, 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 is a kind of a beautiful union between creator God and 
our scientific right. you know, exploration. Yeah, and that's w- one of the things that drives me nuts um, with with both Christians um, and atheists um, is that oftentimes the the discussion is couched in the terms of science versus religion. Yeah. Um, Can we but, spend a few minutes there, yeah, bud? Yeah, yeah <laughs> but I, I think that. Like, if God is the creator of all that exists, right, this is what we assert as Christians, then there should be no scientific exploration that should scare us. Yeah. Right? If, yeah. if, they're, if we're documenting redshift um, and through whatever crazy math they're able to do, they say that the universe is X amount of years old, we, um, we shouldn't be afraid of the data, Um just because it might not go with the things that we previously thought. Because if God actually created everything, if he is the author of all of this, um, then, then there shouldn't be science that we're afraid of. Now, maybe the interpretations of the data um, and the interpretations of what the scientific instruments are actually reading, sure, we can, right. we can debate and argue over that. And there are plenty of intelligent people way more qualified than either of us. Yeah. Who I, I listen that. to their podcasts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but but I think that it it starts with acknowledging that, hey, when when we get that question, like don't be afraid of the student that's a science nerd, right? That's because right. that science nerd is studying the earth that God created, that's and right. hopefully that data is going to push them to that God. Totally. I, I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna gonna be blunt with it. Um, I get very nervous when our Christian brothers and sisters, um, almost like a part of their doctrine. Have said that you have to you have to read it this way, mm-hmm. um, and you have to choose. And so I recognize that there is there is a part of our Christian family that actually says it that way. Like you literally, you need to choose. They 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 frame the the, the issue that way. Yeah. you have to choose. But then there's a whole other part of our family, for for any number of reasons, that communicates that maybe maybe not. Um, so like blunt like that, but they communicate this idea, almost feeling guilty if you start looking into science. Or, right. um, and so I, I just, I, I mean, I say this to my class. I, I've said this when I, I've preached at churches. Like, if you have ever received that message that you have to choose between believing um, the Bible uh, and and picking science, that somehow again, you know, I'll use that that term like it's a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that's a lie straight from hell. Right. And again, like you said, like. If the Father is is the creator of all, and he is the embodiment of truth, why wouldn't we search for truth that way? And, and I mean, science itself seems to be one of his most beautiful languages. Right. It seems to be one of the greatest ways that he reveals himself to us. And so, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that's freeing for some of you out yeah. there. I'm sure some of you out there that that, that might ruffle some feathers, but um, I, think, I think God can handle it. Yeah. I, I, I think we're actually doing it disservice when we try to frame it the way that we have, uh, and I think we're moving forward and getting better. Students were asked, what is one of the most interesting concepts you had heard in regards to the book of Genesis? Um, I've always, like, wondered, like, what language used to be like before the Tower of Babel. Like, was it just, like, one, like, language as a whole? It's kind of just, like, weird to think that there weren't different languages. Um, I've always wondered whether it was a literal seven days or a period of thousands of years just put into a concept of seven days. Some people were talking about how the creation account outlined creation on multiple planets, multiple universes, 
and that we were a universe uh, formed or created later, kind of modeled after this first universe in a different planet. Um, when I first heard that people thought that Adam and Eve were potentially not um, like literal people, that they were just like ideas or concepts that God kind of like constructed to make the like creation story work, um, that was weird to me at first. Within that, what are, what are some science questions maybe that have come up that you've heard from kids and maybe even you yourself? Right. Or wrestling with? I mean, I don't know if we're going that far here. But. Sure. Um, I, I think that, well, before even getting into that, like, um, the idea of how we read scripture, um, I think that the ones who draw the line in the sand, I think that is totally fine on issues that there is really only one one way, way to read it, right? Right. We have doctrine um, for a reason. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. There, there's, I mean... Hebrew is a semantically poor language, meaning that each of each of those Hebrew words, like last time we talked about shalom, right. like there's so many different inflections and interpretations right. depending on the context that each of these um, combinations of three consonants can mean something wildly different. I believe the word for anger and nostrils is the same word in, in the Hebrew language. Um, and so like how... I like stared at your nostrils when yeah. you said that for some reason. <laughs> so and they were angry. flaring yes. too. Um, Sorry. But... But with that, yeah, so there, there is some play in there. Yeah. there. There is some interpretive liberty that one can take. However, there are definitely wrong interpretations, right? There are definitely interpretations that we would say, no, that is an incorrect interpretation. Right. Um, Which is important to hear because we're not saying that just kind of read it how you want and it's right. all subjective in nature. And as long as you think God created, then we're good. Like, no, there's definitely stupid ways to think about this. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and so I, I guess with... with um, with the creation story, your question that you asked, um, one of the questions that, that sort of, um, and whenever I say anything, um, know that in any of these questions that we deal with that are sort of, um, I guess, up to interpretation, I hold these views very loosely yeah. um, because because I'm not an expert and because um, I, I'm, I still buy into the essentials. And so one of, the, one of the questions that raised for me that I'm wrestling with that I'm not exactly sure how to deal with um, is um, the original human population. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. That's, oh, please, let's, yeah. Yeah, let's, when, let's spend some time there. <laughs> whenever we talk, uh, when I was reading something by the BioLogos Foundation, and there's going to be other stuff from the Answers in Genesis crowd that would explain things differently. And so I do my best to read uh, the different sides and see um, whose analysis of the data seems more persuasive. And yeah. so... Um, I was reading a BioLogos article on um, what they're able to do with the analysis of mitochondrial DNA, and it seems from what they're finding that the the human population may have never been any smaller than 20,000 people. And mitochondrial DNA is a type of DNA that the mitochondria in our cells hold, the mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell. And so these mitochondria have their own set of DNA that gets wow. passed on and only is passed on through maternal lines. And so by, by mapping these traits and the information coded there, um, the, the scientists and researchers think that they can sort of trace back to a, a they once called it the quest for mitochondrial Eve, right? Who, yeah. is, who is the mother of yeah, all? Yeah. Um, but it, it seems like they, they have hit dead ends at about at least 20,000 different humans from which all of us emerged. So many ramifications. Right, exactly. So where, I mean, I can already think, I can already think of some of the questions and I, we've heard some of them. Mm -hmm. So what, what are, what are some of the ramifications that you notice right away? Right. Well, first of all, since it's, since we're looking at data, like 
One, the data could be wrong. Sure. Right, we sure. could think we understand mitochondrial DNA, and then be like, "Whoops, we don't." Because well, I totally understand it as yeah. a Bible teacher. I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, one, the data could be wrong, and the analysis of the data could be wrong. Um, two, if it is true, that that's why I say I hold this yeah. these thoughts loosely. If, if it is true, then we may have to reconsider what what original sin looks like. What does what does Genesis three mean? And if we're framing it in terms of our um, shalom conversation, then maybe. I mean, the good news is that there was original blessing before there was original sin. Absolutely. Right? Original Absolutely. commissioning before yeah. there was the original sin that was committed. I'm very on board with that. Yeah. And so so that's the good news. Um, and a, a lot of this is just theological armchair talk, right? Because no matter what, <laughs> whoever you are, you're, we are all keenly aware of the effects of sin in our yeah. lives. I mean, even, um, even as, as sweet and cute as my two-year-old daughter is, I mean... Like I see defiance, and whether like I pass that on to her through right. some weird soul exchange, whatever, or whether it was she just learned from watching me yeah. be there's defiant. Cl- there's clearly this disease inside of us that makes us think of ourselves first, and usually at all costs. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. And so, either way, original sin, the, the or not even original sin, but the idea that we have some sort of inherited depravity um, that that grabs a hold of us that that we get sick with, um, that's still a reality, but. So if there was a larger original human population, then then the garden story may have to be read a little bit different with um, the eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Um, if it perhaps maybe Adam and Eve is is the first human pair of the I don't know the, the Semitic peoples, um, or maybe they're the first first human pair um, that um, is is a poetic device to explain the origins of humanity. Well, I want to, I want to pause there for a second Mm -hmm. and and just camp out there. We, we mentioned it in the first podcast about like the Hebrew names of of Mm. Adam and Eve, like literally translating as life and humanity. Um, again, man, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not just trying to shake the boat for people, but, um, for those of us who have grown up or even currently are holding a literal Adam and Eve, which I still think is totally fine. Um, might we be missing the point if it's actually God is saying, hey, in the beginning when I created life, which we see him do all throughout the mm-hmm. creation story, just creating life everywhere, right? It's exploding. But life in humanity, like, is there any, do you see anything wrong with, with kind of seeing that, with, with not only the scientific data, but even just the way the Hebrew kind of poetry, as we, we've been talking, like, yeah. like explains it? Do you see any problem with that? Not, not necessarily. I mean, either way, we still want to make sure that we're taking the text as seriously as we possibly can. Right. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, the main, the main point of the Genesis 3 story is, um, is to answer the question, why is our world sick? Yeah. Why, does, why does childbirth hurt? Why um, does it seem like sometimes we, j- we have to toil so hard just to survive? Yeah. Um, and we can look at Genesis 3 and be like, oh, it makes, it makes good sense this that humanity, disease. like the first living humans... Um, were sick with the same disease, and and it was chosen, right? Yeah, I think, and and I know I I, I use the the Bible Project um, videos a mm-hmm. lot in my classroom. Uh, they're really effective tools, uh, man. I recommend everybody watching yes. those. Like every single Christian should be watching these videos, um, put out by a very intelligent um, theologian. Um, but uh, one of the things they talk about a lot, and I love the way they frame it, is that that human beings we we decide to seize autonomy from God, like mm. like we. We choose to define what is good and evil as opposed to allowing the creator to do that. And I, that just, that, that makes sense, right? Like, yeah. so in the beginning, God made something good and man, humans had a, a choice whether or not they want to live under those parameters. And right. 
Yep. And now we're still paying the consequence. Exactly. And, and one of the questions I get a lot, a lot, well, Mr. Randolph, you know, what happens, you know, what if they never ate the fruit? Right. Well, I would have. And you, I mean, like, we're, right. we're, we're, we're talking about being disobedient, right? The, this, and even what was the, what, what's, the, what's presented to us in the story as, like, the reason for it, right? Like, this idea of, like, oh, you could be, like, you don't need him to tell you what to do. You could be like him. Right. Um, so it's like, it seems like that's just... Which opens up some other questions too, like why is that innate in us? Right, right. If he made it perfect and he made it good and all these ideas, then mm-hmm. why did we have the ability to like get some funky talks? But right, but maybe talks that are more in line with what the text is trying to tell us, as exactly. opposed to sitting around arguing over twenty four hours or or belly buttons or belly buttons or or if um, Adam and Eve like how did how did their kids have kids? Like are they are they is it incestual mm-hmm. in the garden? Yeah. <laughs> There's some weird. I mean, those are yeah. good questions, though, right. because if you're going to read it literal and mm-hmm. not, and you're going to throw out the idea of genre, then you're left with some really weird questions, right? And and I think <laughs> as as Bible teachers, maybe talking to, I mean, students or parents or um, other Bible teachers, I think one of the big takeaways, though, is that that we don't need to be afraid. Yeah. Right. That that the questions aren't scary. Right. Um, even even today. <laughs> There were some students who were talking about if if robots became self conscious and these new technologies that will make it so that like artificial intelligence and um, I will robots will have minds and like I, I felt like there's this thing in me that there's a little bit of me that kind of got scared like because in my mind I'm like well no mind is a metaphysical reality not mm-hmm. like a physical reality um, and what if this technology proves all this stuff but I realized no if if God is the the creator of reality. Um, then any any reality that occurs, I don't need to be afraid of what is, yeah. right? I don't need yeah. to be afraid of um, of maybe that the the connection between the material world and and the immaterial mind. Um, or if I don't know if if there was a flood, like whether it, whether it was the flood that formed the Grand Canyon or millions of years of erosion, I, um, I can just look at the data and I don't have to be afraid of it. And I think that our students can appreciate that, right? Totally. When you're not afraid. Totally. And and what's cool is being able, like in, in that and in being open and not afraid, we get to say, I don't know. Yeah. And um, I mean, it wouldn't take me long to sit here and just go back and, and rethink, you know, conversation after conversation in my youth with, with older Christians, um, you know, leaders of the church who gave me some, some pretty blanket answers who... Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they were very aware when they were doing it that mm-hmm. they even knew it. Like, but how valuable is it when we just like can say, "I don't know," to, yeah. to be like, "Huh?" Yeah. My my dad growing up would always talk about how he loves the Jewish position. Like, meh, that's God. Yeah. Right. And I know that you and I have, in our own ways, have incorporated that, and we've heard it from other people. But like, meh, that's God. Like, yeah. it's okay to say, "I don't know," and right. I don't know that yet. Right. You know, or maybe I won't know it. Yeah. Um, like, I'm. Yeah, I, I would. There's a there's a little like a little nugget. Like if right. you're if you're gonna walk with God, if you are gonna pursue God in your life, probably should make some space to say, eh, yeah, and and be okay with it. And mm-hmm. and for some of you out there who you know need need everything to line up just perfectly, um, I'll just tell you right now, like good luck with that. Because yeah. there's gonna be times where you have to say, meh, right? I and, just don't get it. And Dr. Kara Powell, who wrote Sticky yeah, Faith, one of the so things she says is like. A, a beautiful tool. You can say, I don't know. Um, and she says, I don't know, but. Yeah. Um, and and in the but, you can together. say the thing that you do know or what you're going to do to try and figure out more. Mm. Um, but I think that that's, 
even if we look forward to the consummation of all things, right? That if we look forward to where this whole story is going, I think when we are in the presence of God, when we're in our redeemed, glorified bodies, whatever that looks like, I think that when you're in the presence of a, of an e- an eternally existent, immaterial being so of triune so love, crazy. like like when you think about who the Christian God is according to um, our doctrines and our creeds, like even when we are staring at him, um, whatever staring at an immaterial yeah. being means, like even when we're staring at him, we will say, I don't get you. We're not going to get it. And I think that's so important. I, I know um, that was one of the things I heard growing up. Like, you know, you ask a question and an adult can't answer it. So they're like, oh, I just, you'll know when you're in heaven, right? That's right. kind of like the blanket statement for an adult saying, I don't know how to answer this. So you'll, you'll know later. And yeah, the psalmist reminds us, right? Like even in your presence, God, I don't, I don't get you. Right. Um, and then I, for me, I, I often go back to that framing story of the garden, and, and I think of the original lie that crept into humanity, which, which is I can know. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that at the expense of pursuing knowledge or, or, or you know, pursuing God with all of your mind. I don't mean that in any way, but this idea that somehow I have the right or the ability to know everything. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, what is the consequence of, of going to heaven whatever that means, uh, and knowing everything when I get there. Well, the ramification of that is I, I no longer need God. Right. Uh, and, and so I'm okay saying I don't know. I'm okay right. modeling that for our students. And I know you've seen fruit from that. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of fruit from that. And the kids are, I mean, just even if they're just like, hey, you know what, Seals, thanks for, thanks for not for bullcrapping me. Right. Thanks, thanks for saying I don't know. I've, I've gotten some BS answers, and I appreciate you saying you don't know. Right, and I think <laughs> even something we learned at a teaching conference recently is um, at one of the seminars I went to, it talked about our responsibility as educators is not to just give answers, but to yeah. awe students and yeah. to instill in them a heart of curiosity. And I think that even though the the speaker of that seminar wasn't like a Christian educator, I, I think that, Dude, that that's truth. at the core. That's yeah. the core of the gospel too. And isn't like, that the creation story? Like yeah. I'm in awe of that story. Right. You're telling me you can create this? Like. Right. Dude, <laughs> and, and so for the rest of eternity, those of us who belong to Christ, we get to say, like, I get to to be in awe, and that awe inspires curiosity, and that curiosity inspires questions, and that those questions inspire conversations. And so, whether we're looking forward to the rest of eternity, um, or looking backward to the origins of all things, I think that it's it's safe for us with with students to inspire in them curiosity and say yeah, that's a fascinating question. Like, let's turn that gem around and look at it yeah. um, instead of saying shutting it down and saying, well, that's just the way it is. That's stupid. You know? Yeah, that's a stupid question. That's you a heretical question. Right, and, and <laughs> I think that we could do this in either way. Like, um, if, if you are a, more of a science nerd, you can be like, well, that, that's totally dumb to view it that way. You, you, we know that the Earth is X billion years old, yeah. right? Um, and we can shut down conversation, but I think that if we wrestle, like if we have the conversations that inspire curiosity instead of quenching it, mm. then then we're doing our job as educators. Not, not that those, you are very smart, by the way. I, I could sit and listen to you talk a lot. Right. Um, no, seriously. No, give me my money. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> it's no coincidence to me that God calls his people Israel, hmm. right, to wrestle with God. And I, I think that's – I've had a few mentors in my life that have really um, highlighted that for me. And I, and I think that that's something I hold dear being a teacher now. And even in these conversations about some of the, the, the more strange things, like what a great thing that we get to wrestle. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I love you kind of implied that in your, your, your last little talk there. Like we will be wrestling into eternity, um, continually wrestling. And so 
Um, I think one of the things that I commend to my students, even when they ask stupid questions, is I'm glad you're wrestling hmm. um, and that you should be constantly wrestling. If, if you think that you have arrived in your theology, um, and I, I don't necessarily, again, mean maybe some of the doctrinal issues, but on, on the peripheral stuff, on those you know level two, level three arguments, if you think you've arrived and you have the answer for it, um, just remember that, that God commends us for wrestling hmm. with him, and it's okay to wrestle. And um, Yeah. Yeah, and so... Yeah. I guess may may we be the people of God, the the yeah. Israel, the ones who wrestle with Him, wrestle with truth, wrestle with the first eleven chapters of this sacred book that He gave us, um, and inspire students to do the same. Confessions of a High School Bible Teacher is a collection of theological musings and real experiences through the eyes of two Christian school teachers. We do not profess to be professional theologians, but we want to provide a voice and resources for those of us working in the unique context of Christian schools. We hope you join the conversation.